Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Future of Jewish Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Hoffman. On this episode, I am joined by Meredith Jacobs. She is the CEO of Jewish Women International, as well as an award-winning journalist and former editor-in-chief of Washington Jewish Week. She authored The Modern Jewish Mom's Guide to Shabbat and co-authored with her daughter Sophie a best-selling series of interactive journals called Just Between Us. Enjoy my conversation with Meredith Jacobs. Meredith, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. Oh, uh, I'm delighted to be here. We we had sort of a back and forth. I think one of my emails ended up in your junk. And anyway, we got it. We got it all squared away. So I'm really excited for for this conversation with you. And, you know, you're doing some really, really amazing stuff with Jewish Women International, which I know we'll get into. But before we do, why don't you give us some background, some context, where you are, where you are today, how you got there, so on and so forth. Oh my gosh, it's a long story. It was interesting, right before we started, you were saying you kind of backed into the Jewish communal world. I I feel similarly. Um, You know, I joke that when I was a little girl, I wanted to be chief justice of the Supreme Court, which based on what's happening today, I kind of wish I had followed that route. Um, But when I graduated college, I, I was in public relations, advertising, um, then got married, had my first child and really figured I would be a a stay-at-home mom and got very involved in um, our synagogue, our preschool, uh, my daughter's preschool, which happened to be in our synagogue. Um, And I became the chair of the nursery school committee and I got on the board of trustees and ended up, gosh, I don't even know how to tell this story in in a brief way ended up launching um, a series at the synagogue on Shabbat. And we're conservative. We're not orthodox. We're not observant. Um, But it was, for me, it was, what what does our Jewish traditions teach us um, that help us become strong families? What's the wisdom we can learn, especially from other moms? And it ended up being a very successful series, which ended up becoming, I launched Modern Jewish Mom, which was the first Jewish parenting website, um, kind of one of the first parenting websites, really, that ended up becoming a book that was published by HarperCollins. I had a radio show. I had a television show. I mean, I had this whole modern Jewish mom brand. Um, And I ended up writing parenting columns that were then published in Jewish newspapers across the country. Um, And one day when my kids were um, a little bit older, they were then in junior high, it must have been, um, I got a call from uh, Phil Jacobs, who I'm not related to, but he was the editor of the Baltimore Jewish Times, and he had just been hired to run the Washington Jewish Week. And he said, hi, I've always loved your columns. Can we have lunch? And I was like, sure. And we met for lunch. By the end of lunch, he offered me the job of becoming his managing editor. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I never even worked in my high school newspaper. I know nothing about journalism. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'll, I I need somebody who, who knows the community, you know, you've got the skill set. I'll, I'll teach you. Um, And so I took the job a couple of years later, they, um, the owners made me the editor in chief. I was like, how did I end up the editor in chief of the Washington Jewish week? And, um, It was interesting because at the time I was on the board of of JWI, of Jewish Women International. Um, And part of the reason was I had gone to one of their luncheons. Every year they do a luncheon, Women to Watch, where they honor 10 just incredible women who who happen to be Jewish. And a friend of mine 
was honored and I, I went and I was blown away, not only because these women were so inspiring, but the work of the organization they had. Um, at the time, they did a program called Good Guys and Strong Girls. And it was talking to really, you know, preteens about what it meant to be in a healthy relationship. And I thought, I've never thought about talking to my children about this. Um, but this is something I need to learn about and I need to talk to them about. And so I, I reached out to a staffer. I said, how can I get involved? And one thing led to another and they invited me to be on the board. And I was really just so inspired by the organization. Um, and one day I went to a board meeting and I said, I don't know what to do. I really don't love this job in journalism. It's, you know, what's next? I'm going to go to New York and run the Jewish week there. I, I just, it was like, what am I doing? Um, and the CEO said, why don't you join our staff and run communications? And I said, gosh, I was, I was hoping you would say that because for me, anything that kind of took me away from being with my family, I wanted to feel like was, was putting something into the world, was doing work that I felt important. Um, so I joined JWI and two years ago, right before COVID, <laughs> I was named um, the CEO. Um, and it's, again, something I, I never, when I was a little girl, I didn't dream of one day running a Jewish nonprofit. <laughs> um, but I, you know, looking back from my time when I was involved in youth group from, you know, all the things I loved growing up and that were meaningful to me, that path kind of makes sense to where I ended up. And whenever I talk to young people, I, I always say, you know what, life is going to take you where it's going to take you. Just say yes, just say yes. And you'll figure it out. I love that. Just say yes. And Mazalto, by the way, I'm being named CEO. That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, I, I, there's a lot, you said that I want to pick apart a little bit, but I want to go back to sort of the first part about the whole aspect of being a Jewish mom and, and sort of professionalizing being a Jewish mom in, in, in a career sort of way that, that you're able to do. I'm just curious, like when you look at sort of the moms of the future today, the sort of Jewish moms of the future, right? So maybe people, you know, women today that are in their teens, twenties, maybe early thirties. Um, we know specifically in the States that the younger Jewish generations are having a hard time grappling with what we can just call particularism with universalism, uh, among other issues related and not related to Judaism. And I'm just curious, like what you would say to sort of the young future generation of Jewish mothers who are either now becoming mothers or will soon become mothers. What do you say to them exactly? You know, I, I, I see two different things almost going on. Um, I look at what's happened over COVID um, at what, you know, I feel so lucky with being the age I am having gone through the pandemic that my children are in their early twenties. So for me, it was wonderful when they came home and we would all, you know, do our work or my son was still in college and then we kind of meet up at five for cocktails. And it was a very easy age to be a parent during this time. But for the young moms, I know, the young parents who, who were juggling, and it did fall, unfortunately, more on the women um, to take care of the children and be at work and somehow manage Zoom school and, and, and what that meant for them. Um, and those were the lucky ones with, with access. I know how much harder um, it fell on women who, who lost their jobs or who had to go to work because they were essential workers or, you know, 
so many of my friends were, were lucky to have the privilege to have the access to be able to go through COVID safely. So I think, I think there's a lot um, of, of work, uh, trauma perhaps on, on young moms today with what they've gone through recently. Um, I also know that it's very hard, as you said, that I never went through with young people saying um, it's hard to talk about Israel now, which is unfortunate, you know, if they identify more as, as progressives, as I've, I've heard young women, I heard a young woman say, I identify as a, as a feminist, as queer, as pro-Israel, and I have to check one of those identities at the door in whatever space I'm in. So I think in some cases, it's it's hard to kind of figure out who you are, what you are as a Jew. Um, uh, but on the other hand, I think there are a lot of wonderful things that are around now that help empower parents. And I, I do think it falls on, on the mom in a lot of cases to make the Jewish home. Um, I look back at what I tried to do 15 years ago, but now they have one table. They have, my daughter is, is 25 and she and her friends get together on Friday night for Shabbat. It's like a dinner party. It's like an excuse to get together. Um, so I think in some ways the, the Jewish communal world has done a wonderful job in making some of these traditions just a part of our daily life in a way that I hope, you know, connects in a, in, in a way that's meaningful. Um, you know, that's my, my thing is always, I think there's great wisdom in what we can learn from as a woman, as a mom, from, from those moms who have come before me, um, those who did it, who can say, you know what, it'll be okay when your kids go to college. Like, it'll be okay when you become an empty nester, you know, it'll be okay. Like to give that advice and to hear that, that to me is more meaningful than advice I could get from other places. You mentioned your book, The Modern Jewish Mom's Guide to Shabbat, which I find very fitting for me personally, even though I'm not a modern Jewish mom. <laughs> I just wrote an essay this week talking about how Shabbat can make our world a better, healthier place because, you know, the Sabbath in general is a day of rest and it's not so much connected so much to sort of traditional Jewish mores. Right. It's more about saying, I'm going to choose to live my life a little bit differently in a portion of my week, whether it's a full day, 24 hours, 25 hours, six hours, I wrote, I write in my essay that it's sort of up to the individual to decide how they want to uh, experience their own version of Shabbat, when they want to do it, how they want to do it, what they do and don't want to do, what are their prohibitions, what are, what are the things that they might um, isolate on those days. I talk about the importance of nature uh, potentially as, as a great, um, you know, uh, opportunity to spend time with, you know, especially people that live in cities don't, don't necessarily get that level of exposure to nature like we used to. And I'm just curious with your book about Shabbat um, and the pandemic and, and everything that, you know, we're going through in the world, your book, I think it was written. Like 2007. It written? 2007. Okay, I was say 2012. Yeah. yeah. So talking about like 15 years ago, but it feels yeah. relevant now more than ever. Yeah. Thank you for that. I know I, I, my agent keeps saying I should do an update of it. I, I mean, even now, I didn't even think about social media um, when when I wrote the book. But to hear what's happening, especially to to children um, with, with what they're facing with with depression, with isolation, with with you know 
social media could be a wonderful way of bringing people together, but more and more, it feels like um, it's something that can can cause um, a, a real sense of sadness and, and loss um, of not even though you might know intellectually that images are being curated, that people are only putting forward um, the best of what's happening to them. I think there, you still compare yourself and feel like, gosh, I, I must not have the friends. I must not look like that, even though you know the images are filtered. Um, so to give ourselves and our children that, that forced break from, from our phones, from our electronics, I think is is really good. I mean, that's to me what I always look at, not kind of the, you know, God commands us, but gosh, this really has a lot of wisdom to it. I used to talk about um, using Shabbat as a way of just coming together as a family of, of blessing our children, you know, like how many times do we just stop and say to each other, I, I love you. Um, you know, that there are just those moments during the day that it's all this like, you know, I've got work, I've got to hurry. Like, have you done your homework? Like, can we get going? Um, and you don't stop. And so it kind of forces you to take that moment to just say, I love you. It's interesting at, um, at JWI, our, our work is around um, ending violence against women and girls. And so we actually recently created a box of conversation cards called Unboxed and it's opening important conversations. And it's meant to be used at the Shabbat table um, where one side of the card has text from Shabbat and on the other side is a prompt that gives you that excuse to talk about um, relationships, about love. Um, and, and, and the important thing is to normalize those conversations so that, um, you know, if there's a, if there's a, a situation where a, a friend or a family member might be in an unhealthy or dangerous relationship, they're comfortable talking about it. They're comfortable disclosing it so that they can get help. So that they're, it's, it's just important to normalize conversations about relationships. I wanna to get to your work with JWI in a second, but I, I, I'm curious to know, you were mentioned in 2020, I believe by the Jerusalem Post as one of the 50 most influential Jews and it's, it's an interesting, very diverse list, of course, as it is every year, but I'm curious from your vantage point, what kind of responsibility does that bear to be on a list like that? You know, I thought about that from even before I was on the list. I think I was, I was recognized along with Sheila Katz, who was just named the CEO of um, NCJW, the National Council of Jewish Women. So I think we were recognized because it showed a generational um, shift in who was leading um, our legacy organizations around. And, the, you know, JWI is 125 years old. We were originally B'nai B'rith women. Um, NCJW is a couple of years older than we are. So we are one of not only the first Jewish American organizations, but among the first Jewish organizations. But I felt this weight even before. I had, when I started the Modern Jewish Mom website, I had women emailing me and saying, that they lived in a part of the country that didn't have a Jewish community. And for them, what they were finding through my website online was their Jewish community. Um, when I would write a book, when I would write a parenting column, when I would talk to people and give advice, I knew that people were listening to me. And I took that very seriously. Like, what am I saying? What am I telling them? Um, who am I to be saying it? You know, that, that, you know, did I just 
did I do something right with the way I raised my kids or did I luck out? And, and, um, and I feel that now with the work I'm doing with JWI, um, what can I, I think about that legacy and when I one day am no longer the CEO of JWI, I want to look back on these years and say that I made a difference with my time here. I moved it forward. For me, that means creating a world in which women can thrive, um, how to help women become more financially secure, how to help um, create safe homes and safe communities, how to raise awareness. We did a a needs assessment in the beginning of COVID and learned that a lot of um, Jewish domestic violence survivors don't feel supported by their community um, and in fact feel shunned. And this was shocking, but when you think about it, it was that if they were women whose abusers were machers, were big donors in the community that too often the community would say, no, he's such a good guy. He would never do that. He donated the day school, you know, that kind of thing. And how do we help our community understand that domestic violence is in our homes, just like any other community, um, how to help prepare our, our children um, to make sure that they're allies, that they understand what's going on, that they can be there if someone discloses that they know how to step in, that they know what it means to be in a healthy relationship. Um, and how do we support our, our, the survivors and their, and their children so that the Jewish community is, a, is truly a warm and welcoming family? We're recording this episode at a particularly interesting time, obviously, with this whole conversation around Roe v. Wade. Um, just curious, sort of, what is what is the organization's role in 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 this greater dialogue in the states, and maybe what are you guys doing to either support or uh, maybe not support it? Yeah, I mean, we I have pictures of our members marching for Roe 50 years ago. Um, JWI was the first Jewish organization to support the Equal Rights Amendment. We have a very long legacy um, standing up for women's rights. The focus on violence is because in the 80s, one of our members was shot and killed by her husband. So, so that was the shift um, for the organization. That said, we see what's going on with, um, with taking away our right to abortion, our right to health care. Um, as, as, as part of that spectrum of abuse, this is about controlling women. This is about taking power away from women, um, controlling women's bodies. It's, it's terrifying. So, you know, someone said my generation is the only generation that our entire reproductive lives have been protected by Roe. Um, and to think that my, our daughters are not, um, and, and now there's some states that are looking to outlaw IUDs. I mean, they're gonna come after contraception. So if you take away the right to, for when you become pregnant, but then what you do once you become pregnant, what's the goal to have baby making machines? Um, and it's coming from primarily extremely Catholic um, beliefs. These are not our beliefs as Jewish people. Um, so when it comes to religious choice, that's also a false narrative. Um, so we will be doing what we can to, to speak out, to, you know, I think for me, 
I wonder how much rallies make a difference. I mean, I think it is to raise awareness and to show people that we're angry and that we don't accept this. And I'm, so I think it's important to stand up where JWI is going to really work is making sure that there are people elected in the midterms and, you know, the, at every stage up and down ballots who are, who are pro-abortion, who are pro-choice. Um, we're going to look into other options. There's something called Plan C um, that allows uh, a safe home abortion, essentially through some pills. You know, how can we use some medical interventions um, that will help give access to women who, who need abortion care? Very interesting. Um, I want to shift a little bit to sort of women in the Jewish world in terms of you know, I'm very, I know you can't give me a, a, a you know, broad sweeping answer about women's place in the Jewish world and the Jewish home. It's, there's denominations, there's, there's the U.S., there's Israel, there's other places in the world. But I'm just curious, like from your vantage point and what you're seeing every day in your work and in your life, you know, to, to me, it, it feels that women are celebrated in Jewish culture maybe compared to other cultures. But then on the other side of that coin, we do know that in certain Jewish communities, women are not necessarily given the equal opportunities, if you will. Um, so I'm just curious, like how you look at women in Jewish sort of on a very high bird's eye level. I think it's really interesting um, looking at our, our, liturgy, our traditions, our history when it comes to women. I know some might disagree with me, but I tend to feel like women, even though there are women leaders in the Torah, I think by and large, we're kind of cast as helpmates, as supporters. Um, I, I see that in the nonprofit world. One of the projects that, that we did uh, started a couple of years ago that's actually supported by the Hadassah Foundation is to... Um, is, is we have two programs. One is called Men as Allies, where we work with men who are either staff or leaders in the Jewish nonprofit world and talk to them about um, who should be a leader. We, how can they be an ally to women? How to like kind of in a, in a very safe way uncover their unconscious biasy. At the same time, we do a program with women um, called the Jewish Communal Women's Leadership Project, where we're helping to... Um, we're working with women who are in very senior positions in the Jewish communal world who want to be CEOs or executive directors and kind of talk about what are the, the gender issues in the workplace that when they become in charge of their workplace, they can create a difference. Because what we were seeing was predominantly women in the Jewish communal workspace, the staff, staff are women, CEOs are men. And, and there's this shift going on right now where the baby boomers are retiring. And so a lot of organizations are gonna be looking to hire and how do we have them not only hire women, certainly not, but how to make sure that there are more women hired and women not only running women's organizations or small nonprofits, but when can we get to the point where there's a woman running Hillel International or JFNA or some of our biggest organizations? Because I do think there is still that double standard. When it's a big job for an organization that has a budget in the tens of millions of dollars, they'll think, well, but are you sure you want that kind of 
oh, those kind of hours, don't you need to be home for your family? Don't you need to be, is she really truly committed or, and they would never say that to someone who was a father. They would never say, well, but how, how are you going to be at meetings at night when you have kids at home? Um, so that shouldn't be in the same place. I've heard um, search committees talk about women candidates and, and judging what they've worn or that they appear nervous or they appear to, you know, the way women are, are judged, how do we flip that? Or even there's a new movement in um, how we're, we're opening up job applications to make sure that the salary range is, is apparent because women don't advocate for themselves. I mean, this is also shifting or even to not list a lot of qualifications because women too often will, um, will pull out and say, well, I only can do nine out of the 10. I can't do 10 out of the 10 where a, a male applicant might say, I could do one of those things. I should be hired. So how do we kind of flip that and, and make our, our workplaces places that um, women can work, women can lead? And what would that world look like? So I, I don't know if that was exactly what you were thinking of, but in a way, it's just like, what is it about how we think of women as Jewish people that is that keeps that narrative? Um, you know, that it's something that I'm, while I'm at JWI, I'm kind of looking at trying to to change. I think that's fabulous. I mean, I come from from a family of women. I have two sisters, so um, I think it's it's what, what stood out to me um, about. I mean, you said a lot of really interesting things there, but one of the things that really stood out to me was. What, why do you think that uh, staff in Jewish organizations skews more women? Um, it's so interesting. I wonder if it's because, you know, that women um, see that communal world as a place where they want, you know, the same way I entered it, where this is a place I can make a difference. Um, this is a place I can help. Um, and, but then what happens is when a search committee is looking to hire a CEO, um, and, and this, this was writings from, there's a, a wonderful book called, um, uh, I am blanking on the book's name. I'll have to come back and think about it. <laughs> um, but, but I read a book that was talking about that search committees will, will often like downplay somebody who has built a career in the nonprofit world and think that, gosh, why was she willing to take a job for so little money? Why was she, like, it's not as impressive as someone who has come up in the corporate world, in the for-profit world. So they'll bring, they'll hire a CEO who came from that workplace and say, oh, well, this guy ran XYZ company. He'll be able, you know, he'll be great to manage instead of saying, this is someone who has spent 20 years in the field and knows the work and knows the people, it, it, there's, a, there's a weird dynamic. It is weird. There. You know, Meg Whitman, I think, who started at HP, I think it's Meg Whitman, yeah, and then who she started did, at she HP as AOL. a secretary or yeah. AOL, something like that, and worked her way up and became one of the most successful, not just female CEOs, CEOs, period, of any company in the modern age. Right. I find that to be particularly weird. I also, as you know, I can kind of relate to what you're saying in that, um, you know, in Israel, they call it a startup beast. Uh, somebody who, who builds a startup, you, you do everything in the beginning. And so when you eventually grow, hopefully, and then hire people to start delegating to, 
to me, you become a better delegator because you used to do those very things. And so I think kind of what you're saying is, which I totally agree with is, listen, if somebody, man or woman, is in the system uh, and understands all the different roles and trends and history and dynamics, of course, there's benefits to bringing in outsiders sometimes, but there's also tremendous benefits to having people that have done sort of the dirty work for a long time and really know it in and out and therefore can lead an organization based based on that knowledge, right? It, it's something interesting. It, it, it's something with women. I heard recently Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos um, and that what happened to her, the way she, you know, committed fraud and scams and all this stuff has made it harder for, for women in tech, women in startups, because they're there's a hesitancy to fund them for fear that it's going to be the next Elizabeth Holmes. Or one woman was told um, who was naturally blonde, you should dye your hair and make it brunette because you look too much like Elizabeth Holmes, where no one is saying, look what happened at WeWork and men aren't going to be funded because of what, you know, the um, Adam. Adam Newman. Yeah. Right. Did, you know, so, so there is this, crazy way that women are unfairly judged I think and and hopefully it's changing I mean hopefully I think I think your generation younger generation um of of men I think hopefully are seeing the world differently um but there is this weird dynamic women aren't women startups aren't funded in the same way it's harder for women to raise money I've just had a meeting yesterday with these phenomenal women from Israel who are in the states um and they have a very important nonprofit. Um, um, they work around um, get abuse. Um, and, and they were talking about how hard it is in Israel. It's also in the case in the U.S. to have um, philanthropic dollars support women's organizations. Um, it's just the money isn't going to women's organizations. And why is that? It's like a little, you know, they were even saying you might as a family make your decisions for where to put your money and supporting a women's organization is like, okay, let's, you know, give them a couple thousand bucks and then like a nice little thing to help their work and not realizing how, how important women are, not only in the home, but in the community and how important it is to support women because when women are strong, the community is strong. I agree. And, and I think that, um, I've been incredibly critical of the existing um, Jewish organizational leadership, or what I would say lack thereof, um, since becoming a quote-unquote professional Jew, basically in 2020. And I find that, you know, women, the thing, the thing that I think that's good about having a chip on your shoulder, which I think a lot of women have, especially in the Jewish world, but not only, is that when you are given an opportunity, you probably have this sort of perfectionist mentality because one slip up and that could be it. But at the same time, that level of um, vigilance and that sort of uh, awareness that the double standard exists, unfairly, of course, I believe propels better work. And so I think now more than ever, the Jewish world needs more women leaders, not for the obvious reasons that we talked about. I mean, to me, that's, it goes without being said, the things that you've been talking about in the last few minutes, but also because 
the Jewish world is not making progress. And the, the organizational leadership that is, uh, for better or worse, tasked with moving us forward is not moving us forward. They're just not. That's and so they're run, yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. You know, I, um, at the beginning when I became CEO and I had all these, you know, and I knew it was coming. I mean, I knew I was tracking forward. I knew. And, and so I had been setting up for years things that I was just waiting. Like when I become CEO, this is what I'm doing. And of course, all those things were upended by COVID. And in the beginning, I felt um, this is so unfair. I can't believe this. What am I going to do now? And And I was forced to really innovate and be bold. And I look back now and I think um, if it hadn't been for COVID, I probably would have kept doing the same thing. And, you know, there where I feel like the work we're doing now is, is so important and is, is just taking us to another level. Um, and I say that because also in the beginning of COVID, I thought, I can't wait to see what happens. I think there's going to be a real shakeout in our Jewish communal world. Now, I think there's a lot of redundancy. I think there's a lot of organizations that probably should sunset. Um, and let's see, let's see who survives. You know, it was kind of like, um, you know, like, like the jungle we were going into and like only, only the strong will survive. And I thought those whose work is, is relevant and is important, they're gonna survive. And instead, funders stepped in and saved everybody. So I look at it and there's no difference. There's no difference now from 2020. And I think that's a lost opportunity. I expected to see mergers, innovations, you know, and, and, and some organizations are, are stronger now, repair the world, you know, those who, who really kind of spoke to the moment um, are, are bigger now than they were but there's still a lot of those old organizations that are doing the same old, same old, that it would have been interesting to see what would have happened if money didn't flow in to save them. So that's an interesting observation. I would say that um, the Jewish world, the way that I see it, and I don't see it from all 360 degree angles, but the way that I see it from my vantage point is that the Jewish world we know that money's not an issue. I mean, sometimes certain organizations feel it is, but on a macro level, we know, you know, there's a lot of communities and civilizations and cultures in the world where financial issues are real and deep, and they don't have the backings that the Jewish world has, uh, both the state of Israel, but also the generous donors that we know exist in the Jewish world. Um, I think that money is actually killing the Jewish world because if we have too much of it, I mean, you see what happens when you have too much money in the U.S. economy, it's called inflation. Well, I would say that in the Jewish world, when you put too much money into it, you have what I would call irrelevance. So yeah. if you're not putting money into the right ways, then it doesn't matter how much money you have because less and less people care about what you're doing. And I think that what's, what's worse than that, which is a huge issue that I see in the Jewish world, is that you're ultimately not going to attract the talent, the human resources the tremendous amount of creative and innovative people that we know the Jewish world is filled with to ultimately create product services and experiences that therefore attract enough people, both Jewish and non-Jewish, in order to make that investment worthwhile. And so I feel that actually, uh, I think the word you used a few minutes ago, which is relevance, is really the key word here, because 
as you correctly pointed out, I mean, nonprofit organizations in the Jewish world are never really going to go out of business, so to speak. But I believe becoming irrelevant is worse than going out of business. And I think that ultimately, the organizations that are able to double down on their relevance and grow their what we call in the for-profit world total addressable market are going to be the ones that ultimately are going to get more of that donor money. And then it becomes a virtuous cycle of more money, more relevance, more micro, more money, more, more relevance. Um, and, and, and back to this, you know, sort of woman-driven leadership, I think that has to go hand in hand because you know, it's not like the Jewish world and this Jewish industry were, were invented yesterday. I mean, we're talking decades of clearly misguided direction and leadership. And we know who's been, you know, I'm, I'm white and I'm a male. <laughs> and I can say we know who's been leading, you know, the, the path for us. Not to say that every single one has been, you know, every single white male leader has been, um, bad or unsuccessful or hasn't reached his potential but like i said just for the reason that women always come in with a chip under in their shoulder like like you need excuse my language you need that fire under your ass sometimes and i believe we have so much complacency in the jewish world and therefore lack of progress because of this male driven ecosystem well two things i mean i think I agree. It's not all men. There's some wonderful <laughs> male leaders out there. And, and I, I don't love that idea of women have a chip on their shoulders to me that kind of feeds into that, like angry woman kind of myth. I mean, I think, I think women leaders are as diverse as male leaders There's some who are driven and creative and innovative. And there's some who are terrible. I mean, not all women are, are amazing. Um, I think what we're seeing now is, is a, 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 and I think this is really a tribute to the, the younger generation um, who's coming up now is an insistence on recognizing the, the diversity that's in the Jewish community. And I think when you have diversity, like when you have all the same, if it's only, you know, cisgendered white males, you're going to have a kind of commonality mindset. But you when you bring other voices, other people, other experiences to the table, you're going to, it's going to push the envelope and you're going to get new ideas and you're going to hear new voices. So I think this push to bring more Jews of color, more LGBTQ, more, you know, it's just, I think that's going to make a fuller, richer experience. Um, it's going to, the more voices we listen to, um, I, I think it's it's exciting what could be happening in the future because of that. And there's there's some pushback because some people are uncomfortable or threatened. And and I would say you shouldn't be. You know, just if you're doing good work and you have good ideas and you're and you're, um, you know, a leader who brings people together, then you're fine. You know, um, and I see that in the way Jewish organizations should work together. I hate that siloing that competition that if your work is good you'll be fine um and and the better we can work together we'll go farther faster um so Amen. i want to go back to your comment about sort of uh, covid having an effect on your role at uh, jwi and sort of um making you have to be more innovative and bolder i'm just curious if you could expand upon that, maybe give a few examples so that we can maybe learn from it. 
Yeah, I think before then, what I had always heard, even though our work was always around um, ending gender-based violence and the way we we kind of had this holistic approach that part of it meant doing, you know, at the time, workshops on college campuses with fraternity and sorority students, with um, doing, knowing that 99% of domestic violence survivors are victims of financial abuse, teaching financial education to women of all ages and and lifting and mentoring women leaders. And, and the three we saw is giving women the tools to be able to have options and to control their lives. Uh, but we never talked about it in that way. And said so we talked about empowering women. We talked about women leadership because the idea was that people didn't want to hear about domestic violence and sexual abuse. With COVID, we knew there was an uptick of violence and that, and that women were being forced to quarantine with their abusers. And all of a sudden, people started listening. People started hearing what was happening to women um, economically and seeing how vulnerable women were uh, more so to, to the market, what it meant, how many um, you know, women lost their jobs or had to go to work and just all the issues that we had talked about for years were suddenly becoming a national conversation. And so we leaned into it and we started talking about it louder. We stopped talking about you know, our, our, our mentoring and our young women's leadership networks. And we started talking about the programs that JWI has been doing for decades around violence, the, the advocacy work. And we did a needs assessment of um, Jewish domestic violence survivors and advocates, so the agencies who work with them directly. And we identified five gaps in, in their need. It was access to affordable housing in the Jewish community. And that was interesting. We actually had a conversation with somebody who works um, for the administration in housing. And they said, we never thought about Jews as, as marginalized and, and what their needs could be. You know, shelters, um, safe homes, all those places are not within Jewish communities. Um, but yet a, a Jewish survivor wants to stay in her community so that her kids can go to the school, the JCC, the synagogue, but, but priced out of those neighborhoods. Um, lack of legal support. You know, a lot of even the pro bono attorneys um, who volunteer to support survivors don't really understand what a survivor goes through and will often counsel like, oh, just, just mediate, just take the offer. They don't understand what the abuser will continue to do. And too many women are going to court by themselves and are actually losing custody of their children to their abusers. Um, so there's a gap in, in our legal support. There's a gap in accessing long-term economic security. There are programs where you can get a little micro grant if you need to change your locks or get a down payment, but where are the programs that set a woman back on a path to, to get a job, to get a mortgage, to get a car so that she um, does not have to go back to her abuser? Um, so these are some of the things we're looking at. They were saying clergy, as, as much as there have been advancements in what clergy, our Jewish clergy understand, it's not enough. And that's work that JWI's Clergy Task Force is doing to help raise awareness to rabbis and cantors so that they can create an environment in their congregation that their congregants can disclose if they're in abusive relationships and know what to do when a congregant comes up and discloses and how to help and not say, go back, shalom, bye, just, you know, 
whatever. So, so that's the work we're, and we're based on that research, we're building new programs around it. Fantastic. What stood out to me there is, is sort of, you know, you talked about how uh, the housing administration, for example, didn't understand uh, sort of the Jewish plight within the overall scheme of things. And I feel that that's a microcosm for the general Jewish community and Jewish communities around the world, uh, particularly in the U.S., just because of the sheer population size of Jews there, um, where Jewish people are in the Jewish, uh, whether it's religion, spirituality, history, the Jewish state, are just completely misunderstood or are not even privy to um, to who we are and and all the different things that that encompasses. And I'm just curious from your from your seat, you know, how, how do we do a better job of what I generally call creating better relationships with our non-Jewish family, friends, and communities so that they can better understand us, we can understand them, and we can, you know, hopefully elevate together the world and, and different communities. Well, something that JWI has done um, is we've created, we have an um, interfaith coalition that pulls together um, 40 different faith-based organizations doing work in our space around ending uh, gender-based violence. Um, and because of that, because we have those opportunities to work together in coalition, we're learning about each other. And, and other faith groups have come to us and said, how can we do for our community what you did? For the Jewish community with the needs assessment, with how you're talking about the work, we also, um, and, and this was really under my, my predecessor, the, the CEO who was before me, did a lot of work to make sure that we were in secular coalitions. So there are a lot of mainstream groups doing work around domestic violence, around that. how can we be part of that conversation, part of those roundtables, so that when they're talking and we can say, here's what our community needs, here's what our kids, so that we have that, um, so that we're listened to and we have a voice in those spaces. Um, and, and I think that's the way. And, and if you're an individual making sure that you're, you know, I, I look at my friend group and they're all people just like me, you know, how do you reach out beyond and become just friends with people who have different backgrounds, have different religions, have different faiths, have different socioeconomic um, access? How can you just through friendship um, learn more about each other? And I think that's hard to do. And I think this is what is so frightening about what's happening in the U.S. is that we are so in our little bubbles and we're not hearing each other. If I, you know, ever look on Twitter um, and just explore another, you know, not the stuff that's usually fed into my my feeds, it's it's like a different world is being reported on. It, it, and and so if we're not, you know, they say we used to all hear the same evening news, you know, it was just whatever was on the TV. And now it's too easy to opt out and only hear what you want to hear, only talk to people who agree with you and are like you. And I think that's causing us to be incredibly polarized. And that's, that's a frightening situation. It is, it is. And it's one of the reasons why I started this podcast, because I personally want to talk to people that I normally wouldn't cross paths with, that I don't work with, that don't live in my sort of neck in the woods, that you know, we can just have meaningful conversations from a place of listening and learning, not from a place of, 
you know, uh, prosecuting and judging and, um, you know, all that, all that sort of stuff. I want to finish with a question about who you think are some of the women in the Jewish world that should get more, um, more of a spotlight. And, and I'll give you a few seconds to think about your answer. I'll, I'll, I'll say that uh, I'd like to call out a few and then I'll pass it to you. Uh, all three of them have been on the podcast. One is Nikki Schreiber, who founded Humans of Judaism. Another one is Eliza Klein, who founded and is the executive director of One Table. And the third one is Gally Cooks, who is uh, running Leading Edge. And uh, they've all been on the podcast. If you haven't listened to my uh, conversation with them, go back and check out the archive. And now, Meredith, I'll pass it over to you. Who do you think are some of the women that you feel should be getting more attention in our Jewish world? Well, I think the three you named are phenomenal. I, I think they're doing some very exciting, important work. Um, I would also call out Lisa Eisen and Stacey Schusterman. Um, I think now that there's been a generational shift um, from the the parents to to Stacy, that she is she and Lisa together are doing a lot to fund the work of the women you just named um, and to make and to fight for um, funding to go into some of these um, organizations into women to really support women. So, um, you know, I want to call out the work they're doing that's truly shifting the community. Um, I think there's some young women doing some exciting work. Amanda Berman at Zionist, I think, is, a, is approaching things from a really fresh um, perspective. Um, I also would like to call out Carrie Brody, who was a young woman who was one of the founders of our Young Women's Impact Network at JWI. And she founded a company called Emma's Torch. And she went to went back to culinary school and then opened a nonprofit that would train refugees on how to work in a kitchen and then find them jobs in restaurants. And it's innovative, it's um, it, it's just remarkable what, what she's done. So I see her um, as a change maker. And I'm also watching Tiffany Harris, who is a phenomenal young woman who is now the chief program officer at Moisha House. Um, and she came up through the Peace Corps. She was also a young woman who was involved with us. I think she's incredibly, smart and dynamic. And I think, I hope she stays in the Jewish communal world because she has a chance to be someone who will really um, drive the future um, of, of our community. Meredith, this has been a really just powerful and enlightening episode. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you.